it's always a little difficult to know what to say and express one's gratitude at the end of a week like this. I heard about you people. I had visited with some who uh, had served here, and but now I have a picture in my mind. And so when I hear of Mabel Chapel, I know who's there and what it looks like. And, and a picture is worth 10,000 words. I want to express my thanks to each of you for your kindness, the many meals, your careful attention, and many words of encouragement. And this morning, uh, quite a few young people came and gave me personal cards, and they were so kind to me. Uh, you almost could scratch your head out here, but anyway. I have been blessed to have been here, and the pleasure was all mine. Again, my heart is running over when I hear you all saying there's a fountain free. We don't have to pay anything for it. All of us are doomed and damned in our sins, but there's a fountain free. And all of us have no reason not to partake, not to drink, and supply the needs we have for eternal salvation. Well, children, I don't have any stuff up here. And so this is just going to be a disappointment tonight, right? Well, I have some stuff. One of the focuses of my adult ministry has been to encourage people to go into service, missions. We don't all go into foreign missions, but many can, many should. And then there's those of you who have left the comforts of your home church and come here to be light and salt in a new place, a different place than what was comfortable. And so, children, I'm going to come down here so that you can kind of see the pictures in my book because it's pretty far up here, but there's really no use in you getting up and coming forward. But I'm going to read you a book. How many of you all are familiar with Two Brothers, One Mission? Okay. Well, you will be after tonight. This is a story that happened in the early 1900s by two brothers, Mennonite brethren uh, from Michigan. Myron and Ada Taylor moved to Africa. Here's a picture of them. Uh, very conservative people. And so we will go from there. A cool evening breeze blew gently through the trees and onto the porch of the Taylor farm in Michigan. Myron and Walter sat on silence both in deep thought. Their young wives were chatting inside as they washed the supper dishes. Can y'all see that? Okay. Finally, Walter spoke. Your news about going back to Africa surely surprised us, Myron. How does Ada feel? Is she willing to leave the home that you and your family have now here in Michigan to go start a new mission in Africa? And what do her parents think? Well, Walter Myron said, Ada and I... We met on the mission field, and when we were married, we promised each other to always follow the Lord wherever those paths might lead us. And I know that Ada's father is Bishop, Bishop Jacob Engel, but we haven't talked to him yet. We wanted you and Melinda to be the first to know our news. We'll visit them very soon. Walter wasn't sure. Africa is such a long way to go, Myron. 
and there are still only a few missionaries who've gone there from the Brethren of Christ Church. Maybe you should wait until a few more have prepared the way for this new mission you're thinking of. Are there good roads where you're going? And what about houses? And are there doctors for your children? And where will your girls go to school? Myron tried to ease his brother's mind. Walter, Walter, all you can say is likely true, but we know that God will care for us in any of these situations just as he has before. The mission board has invited us to be missionaries and share the good news of Jesus with the people in Sinkalongo, where we are thinking of going. There is a great need to share the good news of Jesus' love. We will probably be asked to go and begin to work in Zambezi Valley. Ada and I are very privileged to serve the Lord wherever he, he so needs us. And the mission board has opened the door for us to go. They sat in silence again and finally Walter broke in with a question about another thing that worried him. Myron? Who's going to support you and Ada? And where will the money come from to help you eat and live? Well, Walter, that's another concern. We'll have to take care of most of our needs ourselves. But again, we trust the Lord about that, and Ada and I believe our needs will be supplied. Melinda and Ada had finished washing the dishes, and now they joined Walter and Myron on the veranda. The conversation quickly turned to family and friends and nothing else was said that night about the upcoming move. A week went by before Walter and Myron got to meet again. And during that time, Melinda and Walter had done some serious thinking and talking. Now when Walter saw his brother again, he said, Myron, Melinda and I have an offer to suggest to you and Ada. When your family goes to Africa, Melinda and I will farm here in Michigan and we will send some of the money we earn to you. We can live on less. And in that way, we can also share in being missionaries in Africa. Oh, Walter, Myron said, that would be such a sacrifice for you and Melinda. But what a generous offer for you to share in our ministry in this way. It is surely an answer to our prayers. There's just one thing, Myron. This must be our secret. Melinda and I want no one to know about our agreement. As you wish, Walter. And may God bless you and Melinda. And from that point on, preparations moved quickly. And soon, Myron and Ada and their children were on board an ocean vessel bound for South Africa. They arrived in Africa and they boarded a train and began the trip to Choma. Then they took an ox cart and finally they arrived at the location where Sikilongo Mission would one day be built and established. Walter and Melinda kept their promise and worked to support Myron and Ada's ministry. No one knew. They were often criticized and misjudged by their neighbors and family who figured that Walter was just a sorry provider. His buildings were not always painted. His crops did not do as well as some for lack of fertilizer. Now that was a mistake and his neighbors saw his rusty old car. But neither Walter nor Melinda told the secret of how their money was being used. Walter labored in the fields in Michigan, but in his heart, in a way, he knew he was a missionary too. Myron was always thankful to the brothers for support that made it possible for them to serve in Africa. For 25 years, Myron and Ada worked among the African people, 
They helped the sick, built the schools, and shared the news of Jesus' love and established churches. Myron also worked with the Europeans who were helping build roads into remote areas. Myron and the African Christian helpers would often follow the road workers into their remote camps and share stories about Jesus around the campfires at night. On one of these visits to the work camps, the event happened that would cost Myron Taylor his life. Do you all know what happened? You want to find out? A lion had been prowling around the camp at night and frightening the workers. And Mr. Walter, the European supervisor, set a large trap to catch the lion. And even though the lion was eventually caught, it somehow managed to escape from the trap, but not before it was injured. Now, Myron and Mr. Walter knew an injured lion would be angry and even more dangerous, and Myron wanted to track the lion and shoot it. Mr. Walter suggested waiting to allow the lion to become weaker. Not willing to wait too long, Myron finally decided to take three Africans with him and look for the lion. A few miles through the bush, they were able to track the lion, but now the lion was very angry because of his injuries. Myron loaded his rifle, shot twice, and when he stopped to reload the gun, the angry lion charged. And the men with Myron were frightened, and they ran toward the nearby trees, leaving Myron alone to defend himself. Is that what you would do? Eventually, the lion left, and the men came down from the trees to help Myron. But he had been badly injured by the lion. One of them left to go get Mr. Walter, who walked three miles to where the others live and waited with Myron. They made a stretcher from branches and blankets, and the men carried Myron all night through the hills and woods to the mission. And after walking for hours, they finally arrived at the mission. And by now, Myron was very weak. And one doctor was called in from Choman, another from a hundred miles away, and arrived by trolley during the night. Together, the two doctors decided to operate, but while they were attempting to save the life of the faithful missionary, Myron Taylor passed away. The next day, surrounded by his faithful wife, Ada, another missionary friends, and scores of African people would come to love him, Myron was remembered and then buried. Now back in Michigan, word of Myron's death reached Walter and Melinda, and news was made them sad. But they were happy to know that God had used their families together to share the love of Jesus with many people. It wasn't until years later that the story was revealed of how these two brothers had shared one missionary experience. One brother stayed in Michigan and the other went to Africa, but both shared equally in telling the good news of Jesus, love in the Zimbabwe Valley of Northern Rhodesia. I had the privilege of having meetings in northern Minnesota, Black Duck, Minnesota. And there was a man there that had moved from Michigan, and I read this story. And he says, those are my kin people. And that was really interesting. I won't make much comment about that. That, that story always blesses my heart. We've been in South Carolina for 50 years. But we've got to the place now where we have a nice school, good teachers. And our people said, you know, I like the school. We ain't moving. Some need to stay and work. But when the nice things of life take precedence over the call of God, the church is in trouble.
probably most of you are not aware that I spent one day short of six weeks in the fall of 2021 in Thailand. And I go to Thailand every late August and I teach the first term of the first semester at the Institute of Global Opportunities. And two years, three years ago, when COVID came, in the spring of 2020, we had to shut the Institute down and the American Embassy said, all foreign Americans, you better come home now or you're on your own. And so the decision was made and we shut the Institute down. Everybody came home all the students and teachers, and we weren't able to have classes the next year. You remember that in the late winter of 2019, there was some reports of a strange new virus and its variants in China. It was very contagious, and people were getting sick with flu-like symptoms. Some were dying, and it was spreading very fast to different countries because of air travel and People get around anymore, and we are a mobile population. The institute in Thailand would be closed for 18 months. Of course, the world of international travel and life in general changed much in those 18 months. Lockdowns, face masks, face masks in public. Face masks when driving alone became popular too. School closings and many people working remotely from home instead of from the office. It became the new normal. Unfortunately, there became tension and division within the Christian community. And it seemed that COVID brought an ugliness and a conflict of opinion within the church as in former years when political fervor ran high in time of war, involvement in being the beneficiary of slavery, and at many times maintaining a solid position on resisting evil and non-participation in the use of force, the court of law, and a scriptural view of war and not being involved in any way. The church hasn't been tested like that since Vietnam, perhaps. In the spring, it became obvious that the only way I would be able to fulfill my commitments to teach at IGO was to go to a two-week quarantine in a hotel, many rooms up, many floors up, and many miles away from either home or the place I was asked to teach. I thought about calling up Brother Dwayne Weber, who was the administrator, and telling him, you know, it's just not working out. And maybe he ought to see if he can find somebody else to go over there and teach instead of me. The idea of staying in the Bangkok high-rise wasn't all that appealing. I had a wife at home, and I liked the farm, and I had other assignments that I could work on. And then I felt the prick of conscience. And the thought occurred to me that I had promised. And I could not think of anyone else who would just love to do what I had promised to do. And so it was. I flew to Thailand along with 18 other students. And we were put in a high-rise hotel in all different rooms. We had no contact with each other. We were locked away. And uh, you would get your little food out in the hall on a table. And they would set it by three times a day. They would set food by, knock on the door, and then you were supposed to give them time to get away from there. And then you'd go out and get your food and shut the door. And... I would always try to be polite and kind to those people. But one time I did open the door a little too soon and 
sure enough, there the man was from down in the kitchen that delivered the food with his little cart, and he looked like he was dressed to go to the moon. And I guess they were afraid that somebody would breathe this new uh, germ-laced breath on them. But that was the way we existed. I didn't go into that project lightly. I knew what I was committing to, and somehow that this was what God had for me, and he had planned that for me this fall, and he would sustain me. And so I bought my ticket and studied my lesson. Was it as bad as I thought it would be? Not really. Was it fun? Not really. And while I'm not a registered and properly certified hermit, I can and do get tired of constant engagement with people. And so maybe my personality may have prepared me to cope with my time in quarantine. The students were great sports and seemed to make the most of their time locked away from real life and with contact with others. You know, sometimes it's helpful to look at how things could be to give us perspective in where we're at. And, you know, we can feel sorry for ourselves and think that others all have it better than we do. And so when I was tempted to think of the boredom of isolation, I thought of the late Senator John McCain, who was a prisoner of war for seven years in a bamboo cage in Vietnam and given very harsh treatment, very brutal punishment, and often very poor rations for not divulging information about his country or other servicemen. And that gave me perspective. I lived alone for the most part of a year and had survived in the northern Ontario, and that's another story for another time. I had things to do. I made a mental schedule. I got out of bed and developed a routine, and some of it revolved around teaching and being engaged with the students via a conference app on the Internet. I decided not to turn on the TNV and made a pledge with my conscience about what and how much stuff I would look at on the Internet. I ordered my meals from a menu that was texted to me each morning from the kitchen. Most of it I had never heard of before. Some of it I hoped I would never see again. But most of it was good, and I'm sure nutritious. I never tried to thicken pork blood soup for breakfast, though it was often offered several times. And the squid stir-fry stir was actually one of the better entrees. And then Angie Miller, who had gone with me, She's my sister, my daughter-in-law's sister. Would mess, we would take pictures of our trays of food and we'd message each other and compare and rate our food. And if it scored high enough, if we would order it again, Angie and I text a lot. We were the only ones we knew before going into the Bangkok Hilton. When I got a knock on my door one morning and in due time opened it to find a mercy box sitting on the little table out in the hall. It was from Rod and Janelle Musser. And Rod has a sister married to Leroy Heatwell's son who lives over Mount Hermon somewhere. Anyway, they're staffed there and they had sent me this little mercy box. Later on, I got one from Dwayne and Suzette Weber. I didn't know that Coca-Colas, Oreo cookies, chocolate, apples from New Zealand, and other Western snacks could actually be that good and probably downright healthy, too. It was like the first Thanksgiving. Not so much because of the familiar foods, but the joy of knowing that there were those who cared about me and had sent me their token of love. But mostly, I thought of home. I would spend hours looking out those high-rise windows 
on my 26th floor room. I'd watch the busy streets down on the concrete, the skyscrapers, the cars, and the people as they went about their day. I counted how many buildings had trees growing on the roof and how many had huge swimming poles on pools on top. I observed the round-the-clock progress of two skyscrapers being built close to my building, but yet far enough away that the men looked like little ants working on high steel and pouring concrete. I wrote letters home each night and thought about what each one may be doing at the present being 12 hours behind my day. I dreamed of the green, green grass of home, only to have Aaron, my son, send me pictures of muddy cow lanes and bogged down four-wheelers. I still thought about home anyway, and it confirmed my resolve that if I ever got home, it would always be a special place in my heart, and it really is true. Home is the best place. Eighteen students and I did make it to Chiang Mai and the Institute for three more weeks. I met many familiar staff and friends and, of course, the cook, Miss Ampon. The students were engaged and applied themselves in their work. And while I still often thought of home and still wrote letters each evening, the time went fairly fast. I was finally there doing what I had promised to do two years before. However, something strange started to happen during that last week. My classes were almost over and I was preparing the students for their exam and grading. I was getting my health papers to fly and several COVID sinus piercings. And then I started to realize that if I didn't get on top of myself, on things emotionally and mentally, I was not going to finish well. Pretty much all that I could think about was going home to all that I missed and to the many that I loved there. It was a huge distraction, almost like a cloud hanging over me, a mental fog that was front and center of all that I thought or even cared about anymore. That last evening, I heard the students come in from their different ministry night assignments, and I went down into the dining room and bade them all one last farewell and gave Angie a hug. I slept very little that night. I was so keyed up, but I was finally going home. And so after 50-plus hours in airports, and in airplanes with little sleep and not much to eat that tasted like mama's. I was finally standing on the curb in front of the airport in Charleston, South Carolina. I messaged Grace from when I got outside and told her that she could just roll by gently and stop there and pick me up. And I looked at each car coming around and, nope. And she was in the cell phone parking lot, but I didn't know how far away. And I watched every car, and I was just disappointed. It wasn't her little Honda. And the next one would come, and the next. And finally, I saw her car coming around the corner with the headlights on like cars in Canada. She eased up to the curb, and we jumped out, and... I put my stuff in and we whisked away. No, I wasn't home, but I was with the one who I cared about the most. Perhaps 20 years ago, I was away on another assignment. I don't remember where or why. It's just part of my life. Grace and all the children and our neighbor, Suzanne, came to pick us up, me up at the Columbia Airport. And it was before there was so much security detail. Flying was fun. And you didn't feel much so much like a sardine stuffed in the tail section of an aluminum tube with all the other peasants. And I just remembered as we taxied up to the jetway, I could look out the window and look up into the 
airport at the gate. And there was Grace and the rest of them looking down at the airplane, looking for me. Aaron was a baby in her arms. Josh and Joel had their noses smashed flat against the window with little puffs of steam and foggy breath coming out of their noses and smudges all around. Carla was almost as tall as her mama, and Gideon and Suzanne were way too cool to show very much emotion or excitement at my return, but somehow they had a sparkle in their eyes they couldn't hide, and that smile came from their heart. And Mom Grace, she just looked pretty much tired, as any and only a mother of little children could do and feels when running and man managing the farm with the hired man. But she was smiling too. And yes, I had a big lump in my throat and was reminded again that home is the best place. Some of you know my Uncle Byard Heatwall. <clears throat> He's 10 years older than me. And he had an experience when he was a boy, and he tried to kick the hay that choked up in the bale chamber of the hay baler with his foot, and them spears that moved the hay in stabbed down through his foot. And he spent the a lot of time in the old hospital over there. I'm not sure how old he was. He was old enough to write, but he wasn't very old. And he wrote this letter home. Of course, my grandmother was deaf and she had all these children to take care of. And she tried to come in every day to see Uncle Byard. But one day he wrote this letter home. Dear mother and father, I've been having an awful time this evening. Two children was screaming for their fathers and mothers. And it was real hot. And I wished I could come home, all capitals. I hope I can come home soon. Home is the best place of all. With love, Byard Winston Heatwall. Well, I told you the other night that I spent several days in the fifth floor of the children's ward of that hospital ten years later. And I know the screaming and the yelling and the kicking and the squalling spoiled children. And it was hot up there. I read you that to tell you this. The title of what I want to share with you tonight is Going Home. And are you ready to go home? I was ready to go home. And I'm not going to be languishing around at Wesley and Carla's house tomorrow. I milked a lot of cows in my life. I wake up, still wake up earlier than I should. And I'm just going to load that little pickup and just ease on down the road because home is the best place. That's no reflection on you people. But it, home. But are you so tied to this place, to this earth, that you forgot about home and that that's actually where you're going? where you're supposed to go. Listen as I read Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, 8, and 9. Be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife have made herself ready. And her was granted that she knew she would be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen of the righteous saints... And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These sayings are true sayings of God. And so all of us are invited to this new home. Your ticket at the gate has been paid for with what? Not money, but Christ's blood. And there will be representation from every tribe, every nation, and all family clans. And probably there should be some people there with last names like yours and mine. And if there isn't, it won't be for the lack 
of opportunity. Revelation 7 verse 9 is a familiar verse. You should know it. And after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindred and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms waving in their hands. But I want to tell you this evening, there are requirements. There are requirements before you can go home. Each of us need to meet them in order to be welcomed at that great communion table and the place where all of the redeemed will not only eat and commune, but live forever. We cannot just show up without making preparation and living a life that is exemplary or we will never be able to sing the song of the redeemed. And so I want to read from Revelation chapter 21. It's a collection of verses. You can just listen as I read. Revelation 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride and ordained for her husband. And I had a great voice call out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And I, God, shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things have passed away. He that sitteth on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of life, water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb was the light thereof. And the nations of them that are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do their glory and honor it. And the gates of it shall not be shut by day, for there is no night there. And they shall bring glory and honor unto the nations unto it. And there shall be no wise enter into anything that defileth whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of life clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they will need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And so I ask you this evening, the fountain is still running. It's free. But have you made preparation? Again from Revelation 22, And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He that overcometh will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. Now 22, 14, and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes 
that may have the right to be the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. And outside are the dogs who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. For those of you, if there's anyone here who have not made that choice this evening, to secure your place at the table, at the new home in heaven, the invitation still stands good as long as we have life and the Lord doesn't return. But please don't delay until tomorrow what needs to be done yet today. Hebrews 3.12.15 See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end, the confidence we had at first. And as just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. I say that to tell you this. We often think that there's more time, that we'll get around to it. And Brother John and I, we went to town the other day and we prayed and we asked God's blessing on our day and it didn't turn out the way we'd hoped. And that's part of it. My wife's siblings have all walked away from the Lord. Her next younger sister married um, a godly man he was from Russian Mennonite extraction. They tied into the Evangelical Free Church in Canada, which is conservative, a lot like the Nazarenes. But the call to vocation and other things in life, and then they moved from Winnipeg to Ottawa. We didn't hear a lot from them, but we visited in their home, and they would visit in us. Sometimes it was almost shocking the change that we saw in these people who grew up in devout, godly homes. And the children, they had two little children, and they didn't seem to be doing so good either. And in the fullness of time, we heard that um, they were separated and had other partners who were just shacking up. And then one day we get a message from Aunt Gloria and says, she went to pick up the children the other day and Uncle Roger has pancreatic cancer. And I thought to myself, I need to fly up to Ottawa to visit Uncle Roger. But I was busy. Uh, I had to get ready to go to Bible school. You know, I have to teach these lessons and all these young people and when I get home from Bible school, I'm going to fly to Ottawa and visit Uncle Roger. A little later, a few weeks later, she emailed again and said, she picked up the children this morning. and Uncle Roger don't look good. And again, I told myself, I must go see Uncle Roger and warn him of the peril that he's in spiritually. The children were not doing good. They rebellious and, you know, broken homes is never good for the children. They're the ones that suffer the most. I said to myself, when I get out of Bible school, I'm going straightway to Ottawa. I'm going to find Uncle Roger. And I'm going to invite him to turn his life around and go back to the Lord the God he used to know who saved him. The day before Christmas, we got an email, and it said, Uncle Roger died last night. I failed Uncle Roger. I could never invite him to the fountain free, the springs of living water. He may have rejected me. He knew what I believed. We have had those conversations. But looking back, 
nothing was as important at Bible school that somebody couldn't have took in my place or taken my place a day or two for me to take care of what the Spirit was putting on my heart. I wish I could do it over again. And so I read you that verse in Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's not just about living rebelliously. It's when the Spirit speaks to you and you choose to do something else. Most of you don't remember the Vietnam War, me and Mr. John here and maybe some others, in the way that we were draft age. It happened in the 1960s and 70s. I was a senior in um, the local high school when President Nixon pulled out uh, or started that process. And many lives were lost. I had to register with the draft. and There was a lottery at that time, and I got a high number, and my people weren't called. My age, my number was not called because they were pulling out of Vietnam and letting it collapse and fall to the North Vietnamese. Did you do 1W? You didn't. Anybody here go into 1W service? You look old enough. Oh, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you never were drafted. Okay, well, not everything was bad about that time. There was a seriousness and a respect to your government. And I told you that story about Paul Champ and a whole lot of other things one night. One day, um, I was talking to my buddy Wyatt Showalter, and, and I asked him if when he got home, if he expected to see a yellow ribbon around the oak tree in his girlfriend's yard. And he says, what are you talking about? And I says, you don't know about that? And he said, no, I don't. And so I told him. And uh, <clears throat> you see... When young men were sent off to war, the girlfriends stayed home. And when young married men were sent off to CPS camps, the wife stayed home. And uh, we think it's hard if we can't talk to our girlfriend every day or that messenger. And I mean, you all do. Sorry. <clears throat> I told you that Sanford Blosser, Paul Good, and Daniel Brubaker were married and went into CPS for three years. Many romances were on life support and many died. There was many girlfriends that got tired of waiting for their soldier boy to come home. And their young men, their lovers were killed or left a wife and children at home. And then there were those men, soldiers who were not faithful to their girlfriends. The term Dear John letter started with an avalanche of avalanche of letters that came from America telling their boyfriends that it was over. Don't look for me anymore. Don't write to me. When you come back, don't look me up. I'm with somebody else. And it, it was so devastating that those soldiers sometimes would go off into the jungle and take their own lives. They couldn't deal with the disappointment and the stress of being in war at the same time. The story goes like this. One soldier was about to finish his tour of duty, and he was discharged to go home. It's a place where he'd never been for over two years. And all that he knew and loved was there his mama's cooking and his girlfriend, everything that he remembered and thought about for two years. But on his last tour of duty, he stepped on a mine and he had both legs blowed off. And a lot of damaged facial features. His face was um, scarred and disfigured. Not knowing what to do, he finally wrote his girlfriend to help her brace for the reality of the young man that she loved that was coming home. And he said this, I will be discharged soon. And um, however... I'm not the man that you left, that I was when I left. 
I'm in a wheelchair. I'll never walk. I'm disfigured. And would she have him back? And so he made this agreement with her that when he comes back, he'll get on the bus and come by her house. And if she wants him, she'll take him back unconditionally. There'll be a yellow ribbon around the oak tree in the front yard. And when he comes back and goes by her house and there's no yellow ribbon, he'll just ease on and know that she's done with him and he should make a, a life somewhere else and somewhere a different time. So it was that he was flown back from Vietnam and arrived at the military camp, probably in Dover, Delaware, or somewhere, and got on the bus to go home. Finally, he was in her state, and he told the bus driver the arrangement that he had. Um, he was getting closer to her town. He was in her county now, and he's coming to her town where she lived. And the tension and the stress was more than he could bear. He couldn't bear the thought of what he might see, that there would be no ribbon around that tree. And as they approached the street, and he was emotionally drained, he couldn't take it anymore. And so he just slid down behind the seat and told the bus driver, if there's no ribbon, just catch another gear and move on. And as they approached the street, he could feel the bus turn around the corner and up her street. And suddenly there was an eruption of cheers and yells. And he set up. And there wasn't one yellow ribbon around the tree. There was a hundred yellow ribbons around that tree. Sometimes we come to Christ and we're not very pretty either. But I want you to know that Jesus has tied a ribbon around the tree in heaven with your name on it. And it's not yellow, but it's red and it's soaked in his blood. What are you going to do about it? The choice is yours. He welcomes us whole. He paid the price. The ribbon's on the tree. Not literally, but you know what I mean. Are you willing? Have you made preparation to bring your sin-scarred body and give it to Jesus? Maybe you've known about Jesus, but you've let him down. You've turned your back. You've taken your own way. You've allowed your life to get sloppy. Tonight, you can redeem that life, not yourself. Only Jesus can redeem you, but you can be redeemed. I'd like to ask um, to sing a verse of just as I am. If you feel God speaking to you, you've never known Jesus, you've never accepted his uh, love, and you've never drank of the fountain of life, tonight's an opportunity. If you know there's things in your life that you're trying to bring along with you that does not meet the approval of our Savior, you can be unburdened of that tonight. Shall we pray?